Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week in our search for truth, we look at the federal budget, surprise, surprise, free speech on campus, and Bill Shorten's commitment to electric cars. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Chris Berg. Morning, Scott. Today we welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show, RMIT University Professor of Economics, Sinclair Davidson. Hi, hello. Welcome, Sink, and finally my own colleague, Bella Debrera. Hello. Bella, of course, runs our Foundations of Western Civilization program, or as people increasingly say, she runs Western yeah. Civilization. <laughs> it's really hard to put the right. Yes. I, I think you should just roll with it. If you're going to be introduced like that, you know, just. You the know. problem is, though, they get to hold me accountable when it collapses. <laughs> <laughs> no, out of, out of the ruins. It's like how, when, when Charlton Heston walks along the beach and say, What happened? What, what happened? have we done? What have we done? <laughs> That's all Bella's fault. Very good. But speaking of Western civilization, in our final segment on books and culture, we will be looking at no less than two new translations of Homer's Odyssey. Also, the cultural experience of the NRA Gun Museum in Virginia, and also something for the listeners who love their science fiction and their Netflix, the new show Love, Death and Robots, which Sync will be telling us all about. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or any of the other great podcast platforms, do not forget to subscribe so you can get your weekly dose of looking forward. First up, apparently there was a budget last night delivered by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, and this is going to be the key to their re-election chances. There was. Um, I don't know whether you heard about this, Scott. but So it's the Coalition's sixth budget. It's uh, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's first Budget. Um, it, it's a uh, it, it's a fairly modest budget in a lot of ways. It's obviously an election budget preparing to go into the election, which may be called as early as this Friday. I think the big headline um, uh, thing about this budget is that it's going to be in surplus in 2019-2020. That's not this year, so it's not in surplus already. It is going to be again, in surplus again. Going to be in surplus again. Um, which reminds us, of course, of the great Wayne Swan quote from 2012. The four years of surpluses I announced tonight are a powerful endorsement of <laughs> that et cetera, et cetera. And, now, and now, did, did those surpluses arise? I look, I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, <laughs> uh, when you read the history books, you'll find out that no, no, in fact, they're going to come in 2019, 2020. Now, I, I, I'm not as sceptical, of course, about um, Treasurer Frydenberg's claim in this one, but they... Um, argue that they're going to be $7.1 billion in the black in the next year or so. Now, budgets are, of course, a really major structural feature of the Australian political system. Um, I don't think there's a lot that's come out of this. There's some there's some modest tax cuts, and I know, Scott, you've been looking at that, and, um, uh, and, and there are the fairly standard winners and losers out of this budget. Yeah, I, I agree that... Uh at the rhetorical level, I actually don't mind that it has a sort of a modest approach. Um, I'm pretty over this idea that budgets can be transformative. But yes, I did want to focus on tax for a moment because uh, Frydenberg's winning the game of spin because all the coverage and a lot of the chatter has been about tax cuts. But in fact, there's two things, one of which is most of them are four or five years away. And the other is that uh, for those who are familiar with the tax scales and a progressive income tax system... Um, you're sort of used to the idea that uh, as thresholds are moved and scales are moved, that sort of everyone wins. Um, and But what has happened in this government is that they've actually used the low-income tax offset to make sure that only the low-income 
uh, low-income earners win. Um, so, for instance, if you're on $60,000 a year, your tax cut will be $1,080. If you're on a million dollars a year, it will be it will be $135. Not $135,000, $135. Now, of course, if you're a progressive who believes in progressive taxation, that's perfect. But this is meant to be a liberal government. So to me, this is like a post-Piketty government. This is, this, this, this is the world that we now live in where a liberal government won't actually make an argument for tax cuts across the board as a means of not only letting people keep their money, as a means of enhancing freedom of choice, as a means of actually boosting the economy uh, in a sort of a Arthur Laffer kind of way. It's like no, they've completely given up. They've completely given up and they've just they've, they've forestalled, and uh, John Roskin pointed this out in an email to uh, IPA members last night. He went out, Frydenberg went out of his way to say, even after these tax cuts, we'll still have this amazingly progressive tax system. So it's a, it's a perfect Wayne Swan speech, but speech, but it's got me uh, blowed how that's a, that's a great liberal speech. <laughs> to be fair, though, I, I think the idea in six years' time, I think it is, of uh, doing away with the 37% tax bracket is a good one and increasing the scale to $200,000 and reducing the 32.5% rate. Now, you'll all remember the 32.5% rate came in as part of the the carbon tax that we weren't supposed to have in the, the last Labor government. So the, the fact that most people are going to be paying tax at a rate of 30% in, in, on, on the marginal dollar is actually a good proposal. I would have announced that to start next week. Um, why wait six years? I would do it straight away. The, the other thing that, that I found very strange about uh, uh, Mr. Frydenberg's speech was he kept on repeating the line without increasing taxes. Well, if you go to the back of the, of the budget papers, they've got government statistics there. And the revenue as a percentage of GDP is well above the 40-year average. And so spending is at the 40-year average and revenue is well above. And Australia's been running a structural deficit now for the last 40 years because on average our spending as a percentage of GDP is well above uh, revenue. So uh, we are actually maxed out at the moment. So there's no plans to reduce spending in this budget. And to the contrary, he, there was spending for everybody. They're spending on infrastructure. They're spending on the environment, they're spending on the ABC for goodness sake. <laughs> oh, um, good grief. Forty another forty-four million dollars to provide the news to to rural areas. Now, that's what the ABC is supposed to be doing in the first instance. So, why they need more money? And of course, there's a billion dollars to the tax office to keep on squeezing business and high net worth individuals in the same budget where he says and no new taxes. So it, it, it was a bit strange. There's a, um, a diagram or there's a chart in the age today um, talking about the winners and losers from this budget, which this is the best media Josh Frydenberg has ever received because it's got the winners and losers. So it marks who who's up and who's down. Carers, winners. Commuters, winners. The construction industry, winners. Disabled <laughs> people, winners. Environment, winners. Motorcycle gangs, losers. <laughs> Motorcycle there, 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 gangs. But there's something, there's something slightly fantastic about this budget because we're just about to go into an election. If it's called on Friday, if it's called even next week, we're not really going to be implementing any of these any of these policies. Um, so the question is, what 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 does this mean politically for the budget? And Bella, is this a is this a sort of fantastical budget that doesn't have any strong um, meaning, or or do you think that you know that they actually they hope to get something out of this? Well, just as a complete outsider to the world of budgets, it just seems like they're just it's just a 
try to get just trying to win the next election with a budget that's not going to offend too many people. It's, it's a longer version of a press release, it's isn't it? It's just a sort of just a very <laughs> not very interesting sort of middle of the road. That's how it comes across as a non-economist to me, sort of just not really offending anyone, but not doing anything absolutely. So and and uh, the only difference between this and uh, Turnbull's attempt to have a budget call an election is that probably the optics of it have worked a little bit better, whereas um, Turnbull lobbed his budget on on the table like a dead cat, <laughs> called, it, <laughs> called an election and lost fourteen seats. Whereas yes. this this at first glance seems and and think this is why they won't put the tax cuts through straight away because oh, no. they they don't want to have to go to Parliament. Well, I, I would well. On a purely cynical approach, I would put the tax cuts through after the election if you have won. Um, I, I perfectly understand this. As a matter of fact, I actually think they're going to call the election um, sooner than, than Monday. I'm, I'm anticipating it will be before uh, um, Mr. Shorten gives his reply speech. I mean, why is the last thing you want people to hear is Bill Shorten speaking? Um, <laughs> I, I actually think in, in terms of the optics, um, the, the budget stru- struck me as being very Howardian. This was John Howard kind budget at the, the peak of their powers when the money was flowing in. So it was a big vision for Australia, a big story. I, I think, to, to be quite honest, uh, Josh Frydenberg gave a magnificent speech. Um, I actually sat up and, and listened to, to, to the speech as opposed to doing anything else. I, um, I, I haven't done that in 10 years. I just read them because they're so horrible. Oh, no, no. He, he, he gave a magnificent speech. He performed okay. well on the stage. From time to time, his, his voice was almost... I was thinking, gee, there's Winston Churchill. It was sort of like... Was he, was he mumbling? Away. No, no, no. Not. Smoking a cigar. Um, and so I actually think the... the, the for for, for, for for tragics, I have to say, who actually watch these things, um, it, it was magnificent. I, I think, uh, as, as Bella suggests, for, for almost everybody else, um, it, it, it wasn't that interesting. I think it set up uh, uh, Mr. Frydenberg as the next Liberal leader. And I also have to say, it's certainly, uh, uh, Josh Frydenberg was so much better at doing a budget than Scott Morrison was. Yeah. Um, the Liberals should have had Mr. Frydenberg in well, there years well, ago. Well, this makes me think of uh, Berg's thesis, which he's run on this podcast before, that uh, because the Libs got back so soon, they missed that opportunity for generational change. And so we've really had you know, five wasted budgets while the, while the Liberals sort of thought they could just revert to being the Howard government rather than create something new. And, I mean, her, hockey's first budget was terrible, and they never really recovered, never really had a narrative. And it's almost like it's it's only taken them six goes <laughs> to actually get it right just in time probably to be thrown, um, out, to to be be thrown out. No, and it's an interesting thesis to think about in the context of this budget because the end, the start of the Abbott um, government was um, sort of the, the back end of the Howard government. It wasn't the stars. It was the second and third order. The B team. Um, the B team or the C team. But now because you know, the generation change has actually swapped and now you've actually got a lot of very young and hungry um, uh, parliamentarians who really want to do things. I think the problem is that they're not in a position to be able to um, make any any significant reforms. So Judith Sloan has a good piece in the Oz today. The one word that's impossible to include in any discussion of this year's budget is reform. So tax cuts are good, tax cuts are nice over time. There's a few minor changes to um, 
the taxation system and some small business change, but there's no real big picture reform. And I'm, I, I don't think we would expect there could be in, in this sort of budget, an election budget at the at the tail or what looks like the tail end of a government. But it is a shame that we're getting a lot of um, uh, very dynamic and vibrant parliamentarians pushing out a back-end Howard-style budget. It's just setting Frydenberg up so he can spend the next you know six years under a Labor government saying, oh, but we would have had a surplus <laughs> <laughs> if we had have been re-elected. Well, but speaking of that, so there's some interesting themes. We in would this. have delivered those tax cuts, which you just took away. There's some interesting themes in this budget, and um, one of the other themes that we've talked about on the podcast quite a bit is the role that um, – or the oversized – function that infrastructure spending plays in state government budgets and it looks very much like the coalition federally is trying to replicate some of that so they've announced 100 billion dollars for infrastructure and i'm not sure exactly how that's broken down but it includes things like dramatic increases to the urban congestion fund for instance now we've got the federal government wandering around the country trying to figure out you know black spots on our roads um oh, and i did i did love sorry to interrupt but i did love that they're set they're so committed to fast rail that they're setting up a faster rail authority <laughs> and i think of my old mate rowan lee many years ago when uh, the brax government in victoria promised very fast trains and which achieved something it right. yeah. was a 10 minute saving well, that's that's right in the end it was a 10 minute saving so we decided that the better moniker would have been the somewhat faster train <laughs> <laughs> I, my, my heart sank when I started him talking about super fast rail. Um, really, it's, it's, it's just, you know, super fast rail out to rural areas. And, of course, the story always is that the train's got to stop at every single town, so you actually don't <laughs> end up with the saving that you're supposed to be getting. I mean, if, if, if they were building a super fast rail, well, they, they spoke about it from, from uh, Melbourne to, to Brisbane. Um, well, it's only a two-hour flight, so you, you've got to start, you, you've got to economise on about four hours. Uh, before it becomes viable uh, re- relative to, to, to flying. There's also about $3.5 billion for their climate solutions package, of course, um, which they say $2 billion will go towards practical emissions reduction activities, which is, of course, an, uh, an interesting contrast with the Labor Party, and we'll talk a little bit about that later in the podcast, I know. But it, it sort of it, it tells us that they're trying to close off every potential avenue of attack. They've got infrastructure spending on urban congestion, of all things. They've got climate uh, a climate solution. More money for education. More money for education, hospitals, and so on and so on. Apprenticeships, and so on. And TAFE, it's, it's all and, in there. And as well, 80, another three point... 80,000 80,000 apprenticeships? 80,000 Look, every budget has apprenticeships in it. Yes. Um, and, of course, there's $3.2 billion in, quote, secret election campaign fund allocated under spending measures as yet unannounced. So at least we can have an exciting election. We look forward <laughs> to finding out what they are. <laughs> Um, and we, we, we will, as you say, come back in a little while in, uh, and talk about uh, what Bill Shorten did to actually try and steal some of Frydenberg's thunder. But first, we have been uh, tracking uh, free speech on campus for a long time now. And uh, uh, Matthew Lesh, uh, who's uh, a f- IPA, now an IPA adjunct fellow, uh, produced a series of free speech on campus audits, which really put this on the spotlight and... Uh, Got it to the point where, after years of inaction, once again, just in time for an election loss, uh, the new Education Minister, Dan Teen, did at least announce an inquiry headed by former um, Judge uh, Justice French. And uh, it hasn't quite delivered the report, but there's been enough word out to give us a bit of a bead on what's happening with free speech on campus. 
That's right. So um, the French Review into Higher Education and, and Free Speech on Campus, um, there's been some news reports, it's obviously been provided to some journalists, that suggest there's, um, quote, no evidence of a crisis of free speech at universities, but it will outline, outline plans for a code of practice that would mean universities have to be more careful in how they handle visiting speakers and define more precisely who in a university is covered by academic freedoms. This is of great interest to Sinclair and I, of course, as RMIT academics, we are protected apparently by um, our academic freedom of speech. But it's also of, of, of real general interest, I think, because um, we have institutions in society that are meant to provide students and university scholars and researchers with a degree of latitude to discover new truths about the world. And when you prevent the capacity for that discovery, you you really slowly, you, you undermine the, the basis of, of um, some of those truths. Um, well, I worry about the, the 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 report that says there no there is no crisis because we know there is. But I also wonder: did they ask any of the students? I mean, <laughs> this is the question: who did they ask? If they're going to ask the indeed. administrators and the the lecturers, of course they're going to say there's no problem. It's, they're not going to admit to a problem on their own campuses. Indeed, it's not clear that um, uh, French asked anybody in particular. There was a very um, low-key consultation with uh, invited stakeholders, which didn't include the IPA in the first round, until we kicked the door down <laughs> um, and 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 sort of stuffed the submi- a submission through through the slot in the door of uh, the department. But uh, you know that's, that's a very good point, but because yes, scholars may well be protected. But what about the student experience? What about the students who wanted to go and see Bettina Arndt at the University of Sydney? Well, I mean, yes, it's 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 the students that are suffering, and, and we know this just from from the conversations we have with our with our younger members and and. Uh, IPA members who are still at university. I mean, it's a, it's a really, really, really big problem, which is why we did this free speech audit in the first place for the last three years, because there is a problem. So it's just seems to be something that that is happening more more and more often with the university sector, um, and um, just denying having, just denying the reality of the problem, um, and den- denying the crazy research that they're doing. And this is what I'm encountering in my own field as well with this multi-species justice thing that. You know, they issued the page after I wrote my article saying, no, no, that's not what we said at all, but you just need to click onto the next page and that's exactly <laughs> what I said. <laughs> so it's the same so talk thing us through the multi-species yeah, justice so, for a sec because this is so great this fun. Is where the money, this is where our money is going. To, um, <laughs> this is why we need higher taxes and more government spending to fund this, this research. This is where students' money is going. This is the Future Fix program at the University of Sydney. So they, they're, they're on the back foot a bit because, you know, the general idea amongst the normal people in the world now is, that, <laughs> is that the stuff that comes out of the humanities is just nonsense. It's a nonsense factory, as I think Roger Scruton calls it. Um, and and so they've sort of said, okay, let's come up with something that we can prove to the world is actually useful. So they came up with these future fix ideas, which they believe are of pressing importance to the future. And one of them was multi-species just, justice, which is the idea of giving, of affording, you know, legal political and moral rights to animals and plants. And plants? Yes. Oh, so this is the Prince Charles approach? This is the Prince Charles approach. So and it how comes do from plants vote? Well, this is a very good question. <laughs> well, presumably someone has... I'm to just trying to think of the ballot design. <laughs> as someone said, as someone said in Above the... Above the line? The, someone said in the, the Australian comment section, you know, what about the rocks? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, but then, then they went into absolute denial um, after having been exposed for... for for what they are actually doing in this, in this, with our money in this, in these departments. Um, so one of the questions which which I have about 
the the idea of because um, we're going to move on to the fact that that Trump has actually intervened in in the US and um, the government intervention idea is that is will that then include intervention in what comes out of the research um, what comes out of departments what about if someone wants to research you know, very uncomfortable things like gender and and um, ability to add up and mathema- mathematics is, is this is this going to be something that that we can control as well not just speech but the fact that there are so many things that people aren't researching well this is a conversation we haven't had because it's uh, I mean this the French review is narrowly concerned with the climate for free speech and academic inquiry on campus but uh, there is a whole nest of other questions uh, which we may not examine the AIA. so it's, you're you're talking about say the um, uh, Australian Research Council grants and the yeah. various, various yeah. programs which fund the research, as as Sink says, over and above the ordinary run-of-the-mill research that you would expect academics to be in, yep. involved in. And, and again, this is this is something that we've um, is completely unexamined and un, unchallenged, except by us. Well, I, I think the the Trump intervention is quite interesting because what it actually does is give university administrators cover in dealing with some of the more outrageous events we've seen on what, 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 what has Trump done? So, so he's basically said that um, b- before universities in the United States can get federal funding, they have to comply with more or less American law. Um, they have to make sure that students' rights are not being trampled and, and overrun and all this sort of stuff. Now, we have seen some serious outbreaks of, of violence and hooliganism on university campuses in the United States. I'm not convinced that we've seen too much of that here in Australia, but let's just stick to the United States first. Um, so more or less, he's just come out and said, you, ha- you have to obey the law of the land. You, you, can't, you can't take away people's First Amendment rights simply because they're on a university campus. Um, that gives university administrators in the United States cover because they can say to their students, look, it's not us being bastards, um, it's orange man in, in, in the White House <laughs> being the bastard, blame Mr. Trump. Um, and, and so th- th- that's giving them high-level high cover, and they need that high-level cover because very often university administrators are in a very difficult position because it's their own paying customers who are running riot on the campus. So there's a challenge for them. I'm not at all a fan of the government, however, saying um, research into whether plants should have human rights um, is a good idea or a bad idea. I I personally think it's a bad idea, but compared to what other other things those humanities people could be getting up to, that's probably one of the least worst ideas that's come (laughs) out of one of those places. So that doesn't worry me too much in in the grand scheme. It's okay if they think about plants for a couple of years. Yes, 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 as opposed to thinking about progressive... Modern monetary theory yes, or, yes, or any or other things where they can actually idea. do great damage yes, yes, to the yes, real so world. Those guys thinking about plants keeps them off the streets out of mischief. <laughs> They're also exa- examining what it is to be human, a human being. Yes, and, yeah. and I, th- I think that's exactly what a, hum- what a humanities department should be doing. Um, there's, uh, there's this crazy thing. Uh, 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 one of my own children is currently at Melbourne University and he's doing a subject called power. Yeah, that's a compulsory one. It's been around. Um, it's it's a um, uh, it's a broadening subject or something. Yeah, it's yeah, first year. Brett, yes, Brett subject. Brett yes. subject. Yes, yes. And he came home and said to me that he had learnt at university that working in McDonald's was like being in a Second World War concentration camp. <laughs> 
And he said, "It's a strong claim." Yep. (laughs) No, accept it as fact. Clearly, yes, yes. And he said to me, "The person sitting next to him was muttering." (laughs) (laughs) You're making me do this subject. So, so that, that, that of course, and this is the hope of the future, of course, that for every academic who thinks that by uh, forcing them through a course like Power that they're all going to come out in, uh, as committed followers of Michel Foucault. F- f- despite that fantasy, the students actually sitting there and muttering yeah, to I themselves. Think it's I just think that they're being made to do it because they're being exposed very early on at just how crazy it's, it's it like is. It's like inoculation. It is. Yes. Great. I, I think, yeah. I think there's a couple of things going on. It's the opposite of the anti-vax. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of things obviously going on here. and um, uh, One of which is that um, university lecturers don't have that much control over what the students think. Very little, um, actually. Very little control of, you know, uh, Sinclair, you're, you're a currently um, running a course, you know, you've got to, you can't get them to do the reading um, uh, as a general rule, as opposed to convert them onto a political ideology. But um, uh, the the more, the the deeper concern, I think, what's going on is that a lot of these threats, threats to freedom of speech, they do not come from the departments, they do not come from the university bureaucracies, they come from the student bodies themselves. and Our paying you, customers. The, the paying customers, but they, they come from cultural movements within the student cohort that have decided as a collective group that um, some things cannot be talked about on campus. And they are, to the extent that university administrators and bureau, bureaucrats are um, involved, I think a lot of the pressure is coming from the students forcing the bureaucrats to act. And, you know, I'm no fan of the university bureaucracy by any means, but I think it, it comes from the students themselves. And one of my concerns with the, the Trump executive order, and Sinclair's right that this does provide some sort of cover for the university administration, but the idea that these problems are coming from the university is just wrong. It's coming from the students. But the, the students must be getting their ideas from somewhere. They're not getting the ideas from the lecturers. Uh, we actually have an experiment. We run it every semester. Uh, where it, we they expose, called exams. They called exams. <laughs> we expose <laughs> students to a whole bunch of ideas, and at the end of the semester, we examine them on what they have learned. And it is the most disheartening process you have ever been through um, because all your throwaway lines, your crazy dad jokes, um, they all come back at you. Um, <laughs> what you were actually hoping the students would learn, not so much. So the, the, the idea that, that students are somehow being... I don't know, brainwashed by by academic staff is is, is simply not true. And well, we might disagree agree to disagree on that, but I think I just want to come back to Chris's point because this really is the nub of what we need to see out of the French Review, and and this at least should be a signpost um, for what needs to happen in the future. Because if you are right, Chris, then if that is the real issue, that uh, movements on campus are essentially exercising a heckler's veto, we you know we will literally shout down no platform prevent the introduction of ideas with which we disagree, and particularly we're talking about the um, uh, what comes out of identity politics. Uh, we, I would say there is a positive obligation on those who run universities to say part of our mission surely is to create a space in which ideas can be exchanged. So certainly I'm, I expect French to be very solid uh, on academic freedom, as indeed he should be, that um, uh, academics should have uh, uh, particular uh, rights or freedoms when it comes to expressing opinions. So, But what you were talking about, that is actually the nub of the issue because if, if the actual uh, tenured academics or uh, the equivalent in Australia have those freedoms, but students can be prevented from uh, staging events, 
uh, calling guest speakers, then um, then I don't think universities are actually fulfilling their mission. No, and I think there's a there's a lot to that, and I think that's right that the universities have a positive obligation to present to their own cohort, academics and, and students a lot. And 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 I think yeah, a, a Sinclair for the most that part. happens, but but. but uh, they're not. I don't think people are being radicalized on campus. I think they're being radicalized on the internet. I think we are we are going through a period in which there's a large group of people, and it is a minority, but it is a large group of people who have been convinced that freedom of speech is bad, and not because they're going to bad lectures, but or even hanging out in bad groups at university, but because they're just reading about this stuff constantly on Twitter. This is this is a general social problem, and unfortunately, the only way to deal with these general social movements is to contest them in the space of freedom of speech, rather than trying to use you know weaponize university bureaucracies. And and then the other thing is, it's there there, there is a dispute on campuses um, between between two groups of people. Um, to be slightly controversial, I am not a big fan of inviting outsiders onto university campuses to talk. Anyway. Uh, we have a situation where we have trained academic staff, we expose students to ideas over a three or four year degree program, they have lots of different approaches and what have you. Um, a lot of the people who get invited onto campuses who cause all the excitement are not there to deliver academic content. They don't have to come onto a campus. Uh, the, the university is, is, is an organisation, it, it, it rents out lecture theatres. If they're renting out a lecture theatre and there's a disruption, that's a property rights issue. If students are disrupting classes, that's an academic discipline issue. But student societies inviting people onto campus just to give a random speech is not actually within the university's educational role. There are clubs and societies you can do that off campus, but, you can do that anywhere but else. So that's I the don't, idea of the I, Cambridge Union, you just shut that down. Yeah, I, and, and fine, it doesn't worry me. <laughs> um, but I, don't, I don't think I, that's right. So, so no. yeah, no, no, I, I understand if you've got the university as a business model strictly, but universities don't view themselves as just businesses because they also believe very, very strongly in building these sort of Cambridge Union, these these student groups and, and yada, yada, yada. You know, the a, a student soccer club is not part of the business model of a university, but the universities tend to think they're really important. Yes, and it doesn't worry me that we don't have compulsory student unionism um, <laughs> and that we don't have compulsory fees. Um, so I, I think it's absolutely appalling when people do get invited that they get shouted down and we see hooliganism and what have you. But that's not actually the university's business model. Our business model is still working fine. We educate students to the best of our ability, to the best of their abilities. Um, they tend to get jobs. They tend to go on and have successful lives. Very often, many of them tend to go on and become liberal voters and IPA <laughs> members. So this whole notion that we're some sort of creating a zombie generation is just simply not true. And, of course, while they're on campus, they can, jo they can join the IPA uh, as Generation and, and, and Liberty members for, for only $22 <laughs> a year. And we need, we need more of that. Um, so we look forward to actually seeing the French Review if the Liberal government lasts long enough to release it and if it doesn't just I, get buried I, I, in the... Before, before we move on, I think it's also worth pointing out that this comes in the context of the Peter Reid case which is one of the most significant academic freedom cases in um, in the last decade or so in Australia. And um, the idea that there wouldn't be um, more firm definition of what academic freedom is in the wake of that, I mean, the, the legal system is going to come up with a new um, approach to academic freedom. It's going to have to, given... Um, uh, given given the de 
the debates that have occurred in that trial. But it's it's going to be very important for the French Review to actually define or determine where the boundaries of academic freedom are, and let's hope it does so in a good way. Well, the, the, the interesting thing there is that actually the courts, the common law, will actually establish a, a, a boundary. And if, if Gideon Rose's uh, um, uh, tweets or anything to go by, I think the university has lost that case. Um, and it's going to be very interesting in terms of what the judge says because all universities will be informed by that. Um, I, I think a lot of people have looked at that case and thinking, gee, this is craziness. That, that is in the federal court, though, um, and it will be a very, very important and closely read judgment. Um, but ultimately... And unless it goes to the High Court, and um, uh, for Peter Ridd's sake, I hope it doesn't. I hope it's just a resounding victory and JCU packs up its bags and goes home. But unless it goes to the High Court, these things are still undefined. But you're right that there is a, a common law evolution, but I think French, surely, as a former uh, a High Court justice, could actually move that debate along a little bit. Yes, he could, but he's actually a retired judge. Um, the, the universities are going, to looking, are going to be looking at what happened in the court. And they're going to be looking very carefully at, at, at what happened. And they're going to be looking at what they can get away with. And oh, they're going to like be looking. Else. And they're going to be looking at what the universities argued. So, so as we understand, some of the arguments that the university's been making have been trying to exclude areas that um, Peter Ridd is clearly an expert on, or clearly has academic knowledge on, from his own academic freedom. Um, and the idea that we would be defining academic freedom so narrowly to exclude everything you haven't literally published a paper on just makes the idea of academic freedom absolutely worthless as, as a way to discover information about the world. Yeah, because uh, many universities have academic freedom in their enterprise agreement and uh, it needs to be in a separate document. And I think universities... Yeah, it's the wrong place for it, isn't it? Yes and no, because part of the thing that, 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 that uh, a lot of people making arguments about academics also forget is that academics are employees of a specific institution. We are not paid by society or the industry or we're actually employees of a specific in, in, um, institution and those institutions have the right to direct the behaviour of their employees. Um, so we, we, we don't have a very different system of employment in universities than we do inside the United States. We are actually just employees covered by the, the master-servant law, effectively, um, <laughs> that every other employee... That's how I feel, too. By. That's how I feel. <laughs> it's actually based <laughs> on that very principle. Um, but so, yeah, it's, 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 it, 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 it is a difficult do and complex do you do, doff your cap to the vice-chancellor as you walk past? I would. If I, would if I had hair, I'd be... <laughs> <laughs> Tugging the forelock. Yes. Appropriately. Yes. No, no, no. Good, good discussion. Thank you. Um, back, uh, as I mentioned before, we uh, in the days before the federal budget, uh, rather than wait for the address and reply, Bill Shorten thought he would get out in front, and uh, there was a whole bunch of things uh, loosely under a sort of a Green New Deal kind of buzz. Uh, but we wanted to focus on one aspect of that, and that was um, Bill Shorten's announcement that. By 2030, uh, 50% of new vehicles purchased in Australia will be uh, carriages pulled by unicorns <laughs> who only eat tofu and only produce by way of waste That's, gas patchouli instead of methane it's from their be, back end. Is, it, that, is, that what, is that what he actually promised, uh, yeah, Chris? That's, that's pretty close. How's um, that going to sit with the multi-species justice? <laughs> <laughs> Do those unicorns vote? <laughs> so the Labor government has announced, as he, as he pointed out, a oh, national target. The Labor government oh, sorry, the Labor government. <laughs> I've literally written the Labor government here, so we get in early. Um, you heard it here first, folks. 
Um, the Labour opposition has announced or proposed a national target of 50% electrification of Australia's new car sales by 2030, which is going to take, of course, to the election. Light vehicles are going to be suffer, uh, subject to tighter emissions standards. Now, um, uh, our colleague at the IPA, Andrew Bushnell, wrote a fantastic post not post, a fantastic op-ed in the Daily Telegraph that I would like to read with your indulgence, Scott, because Please it's um, great fun. I don't understand all of it, but it, it was is great a fun. Um, it opens with, what do Bill Shorten and Mike from Married at First Sight have in common? They are both gaslighting the entire nation. <laughs> gaslighting is when someone tells you a story so contradictory of known facts that you come to doubt your sense of reality. Mike from Married at First Sight, has become notorious for trying to confuse his television bride, Heidi, by blatantly denying that he's said or done things that have been witnessed by millions of viewers. Now comes Shorten as a contender for Gaslighter-in-Chief, spinning a wild tale of all the riches we stand to gain from the government forcing us onto electric cars. There's two points about this. That's a fantastic opener for an op-ed, Andrew. Um, we have no idea what's happened on Married at First Sight, though. Um <laughs> Uh, uh, but you know, so so really, what, what a lot of blank stares around the table. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, is it on Netflix? <laughs> is it on Netflix? That's a good question. Um, so, uh, look, the the um, Labor Party wants to introduce a major carbon policy without something that could be called a carbon tax by the um, coalition. Anything's going to be called a carbon tax, of course, by the opponents of, of it. But they're trying to move in this direction by um, uh, this what they claim to be massive investment in green vehicles. Um, I think there is a couple of interesting questions that we can talk about this perhaps. Is this is this a good innovation policy by itself? Um, will this be successful? Um, and and what does the Labor government or left Labor government, Labor opposition actually think it's getting out by by sort of stretching itself so far, um, by making a stand about a very particular piece of policy. It looks to me a lot like the cash for clunkers approach that the Gillard government had, um, which was a resounding failure, um, uh, but I'd be interested in your views. Just to point out, the Greens policy is to have 100% of motor vehicles <laughs> being electric by 2030. Well, why not? Yeah, well, so well, the Labor's halfway to the Greens in, 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 this, in this particular so story. trucks, utes, uh, tractors? I, I, it's it's a big rollout of infrastructure, which everybody agrees is a good idea. So it's, oh, it's, yes, it's, of course, infrastructure. Well, in, infrastructure and innovation. Well, the, the, the biggest thing you need to actually roll out here are the charging spots. Um, the and, and that actually has to be the story because you can't just plug your car into your house power. You have to have specific lines. You have to have certain voltages and all this sort of thing. So it's actually the rollout of charging stations that is actually the story here. And just think about the size of this landmass, though, that we're on. Just how yes. are they going to do that? How are they going to put charging stations in the middle of the... Yes. Enough charging stations... It's, it's, it's going to be a challenge, but um, I, uh, Craig Emerson had a great tweet uh, um, overnight basically saying, well, we faced this problem before with petrol stations, and that's actually a, a reasonable argument. But too. we didn't have the government fund the petrol stations. And, and no, and, no. And that is, that is not a reasonable argument at all. Why not? <laughs> um, fossil fuels are this uh, amazingly concentrated fuel source. It's uh, easily yeah, transported. Yeah. Ele electricity has to be delivered in real time to any point. Uh, with with frequency control, it needs transmission lines. Um, everyone's be the sunniest country. You park you, pa you park your car in a block of flats. <laughs> so a million blocks of flats around uh, Australia are going to have to have charging stations in the basement. 
that's a separate argument. And, and that, <laughs> no, it's the argument you just actually, made. You no, just no, said it was that, easy. No, no, no. I, I, I said we, we've solved this problem before. The, the, the no, other it, argument that, that is the issue is what is the demand for cars going to be like in 10 years' time when we are looking at driverless cars and all this sort of stuff? So I actually think they, they want to have a massive innovation that's going to be very expensive, bringing new product to market that people are going to pay high prices for at the same time when the demand for private vehicles is going to be falling. So I'm not quite sure how the economics of this actually works out in practice. Why would you buy a new internal combustion engine motor vehicle now, knowing that in 10 years' time they want to get it off the road? Because the other thing that you do is you start taxing internal combustion vehicles to get them off the road to replace them with uh, electric vehicles. At the same time, uh, electric vehicles are horrifically expensive. They also want to... um, uh, change regos on, on, on vehicles, uh, make them exempt for uh, electric cars, uh, GST exempts. Now, these are actually state government issues as but, well. But, so that's, it's but, that's, but that's another absurdity. So uh, there's, a, there's a tax on petrol, which essentially is more or less seen to be hypothecated towards roads. Which, so electric vehicles are not paying that tax. So, so the actual funding that is enabling all this infrastructure binge on roads Goes down in this in this unicorn scenario that that uh, you and and Chris Emerson are, are, are painting. So it's just and 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 meanwhile, all the, the, this great assumption that there's some kind of massive emissions reductions out of this, which on a life cycle basis is just yeah, a nonsense. No, no, the, the idea that we're going to get yeah, yeah. the the idea that we're going to get the benefits of a carbon tax from a fifty percent electric car sales it's is just is just is, is fantasy. I I think that. Long term, it's very likely that we're going to move to electric vehicles, particularly because um, most of the uh, autonomous vehicles are electric vehicles. Yes. Um, and as we make that transition, that we're going to be move, we're going to move to electric. But there's really no country in the world that's had. Uh, that has significant electric vehicle um, penetration exactly. that hasn't massively, massively had the government invest in this, in this program, and and for for not a huge amount of gain. Um, at all, and certainly not a huge amount of very from very emissions low reduction. rates of actual cars on the road. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Yeah, because there, there, there's, there's no power stations. There, there, there's no. no you sound like Evan Thornley. It's just blame, <laughs> blaming the network effect. It's because it's a ridiculously expensive and and pointless way to do things. Like as Chris says, over time, like most of these green new deal technologies, one day they'll happen and one day they'll be fantastic. But in the meantime, we're going to pour billions and billions of taxpayers' money, make everyone's lives miserable. The only way you can, you can do it is by increasing the cost of the other car. You say, why would you go out and buy a car now when in 10 years it's off the road? Because you can get one for about $16,000 and throw it away. Like, instead what, 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 of, what is the option, though, if you're not going to buy one of those cars? What are you supposed to do? Just the much more expensive. Can I, can I just say, I would not be seen dead a in a $16,000 car. <laughs> just, it's just wrong. Um, you know, I have a certain image and persona that needs to be... Um, but, but more seriously, the, the, the other thing... That, <laughs> the other thing that, that, that is very crazy is that uh, they also want to lower... Uh, they want to lower the threshold on the luxury car tax. Now, the luxury car tax is an absolutely appalling piece of public policy which prevents poor people from buying nice cars. 
um, because you, you, if, if, it's if your human right to have a Maserati. It is your human right to be able to afford to, to buy a nice car, if you're into cars, um, to, to buy a nice car without having to pay the government like you're some sort of rich person. So one of the things that they should be doing is actually phasing out the luxury car tax. Um, but uh, the Labour Party wanted to bring down the threshold, more or less, um, to, to, to force people to, to not buy nice cars, to buy $16,000 cars perhaps, Scott. Um, and that's bad policy. The other thing is a lot of the safety features that come with vehicles are now taking cars above these sorts of thresholds. So you actually end up with more dangerous cars. So the, the, the whole policy around cars is actually completely wrong-headed and muddle-headed. Um, as, as Chris says, I think we're going to end up with electric cars somewhere down the track. I don't think the government should be telling us how to do it. There's an interesting um, uh, aspect to this that not a lot of people have picked up, and this is some work that Sinclair and I are doing on innovation policy. This is um, uh, part of the new trend of innovation policy where you have, rather than just um, giving generic funding to research and development or IP or just subsidising research programs, now the governments like the idea that they'll pick an area and just massively fund that particular area to solve huge global national problems. And we, they're sort of like, it, it's it's moonshot stuff. So, um, you know, we're going to land someone on the moon in 10 years. We're going to have a Green New Deal that's going to solve both climate change and inequality at the same time. We're going to massively invest in green cars and that's going to solve climate change as well. So what what the Labor government is doing is actually plugging into this global trend of just massive, massive government investment in fashionable technology to solve what they consider to be fashionable big problems. And of course, the, the, the track record here is appalling. Um, they did get to the moon. What, what are some exa- examples? <laughs> well, the moon, for a start, was, uh, <laughs> was, was was an example. Now, the moon was actually not about going to the moon. It was about developing military technology for, for, for missiles and intercontinental ballistic missiles. And, of course, people say to us, what did we get out of the moon shot? Well, we got Teflon. Um, and, and, uh, and aluminium foil. Yes, yes, yes. And you see the things, if you wanted to invent Teflon and aluminium foil, we spent a lot of money. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, yeah. And um, we never even got to use those <laughs> missiles on Russia. So yes, the money was well, wasted. No, no, no. There's still an opportunity, bearing in mind. It's no, just, just, just wait well, your turn. The way things are going. Yes. Yeah, okay. um, um, and and, and the, then we always hear these arguments about how governments have invented things. Government, in the Australian government, the CSIRO, apparently invented Wi-Fi. Um, and in actual <laughs> fact, they, they did no such thing. They did some very complex mathematical stuff around black holes. And it turns out that the, the, the maths of black holes can also be used for Wi-Fi. Now, that's a spillover effect. But what, what Chris and I are arguing now is that innovation doesn't actually occur until you've got a viable business model. So you can make stuff, you can make toys, um, but un- until until you can sell these toys to 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 willing people at at a profit, um, innovation hasn't actually happened. So when we talk about innovation policy, and and Mr. Frydenberg did this last night, he was talking about making stuff and commercialization, like as the bolt-on. Well, actually, commercialization is the whole story, not the making stuff. And that's right. When you think about the green car, you've got to think, well, what is the consumer demand for that? The, yeah. the, this will be a successful policy if. And only if Australian consumers want to buy electric cars. And right now, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that anybody but a very small niche of people do. Yeah. And, and the way markets usually work is it starts with that very small niche. If you're oh. in Fitzroy and there's charging sta- – or, or Ultimo or Indrapilly and there's um, charging stations everywhere and there's a reasonably priced electric car go and you only do 30 kilometres a day – 
go your hardest. Oh, but fantastic! It'll be very, it'll be very fashionable and it'll be very cool for the early adopters. And you know, we have but some early people adopters driving already. to Adelaide. Don't want to run out of Well, everybody runs out of electricity in South Australia, so there'll be no way to refill on the way back. The other point is that a lot of the early adopters of new technologies tend to be very, very rich people. Well, Australia has got a very, very progressive and aggressive. Uh, tax system. So all those rich people are, are being taxed to death already. We've got an agency that runs after them, getting every single last penny out of them. So uh, the, if, if you want people to take up new technologies, you've got to make sure that people at the top end of the income scale have got lots of disposable income and not little disposable yeah. income. And in that sense, when you fund innovation in this way, you're actually doing a massive transfer to wealthy people. The first people who will buy these cars will be the, wealth, uh, the very well off. Um, they'll be the ones who can afford the, you know, the expensive Teslas. Um, not uh, to mention the expense of electricity. Not to mention <laughs> yes, that's right. And we've doubled the cost of electricity. Wonderful. Uh, we have reached that point in our podcast where we talk about books and culture. Dr. Berg, would you like to? Take sure. That away? So my my culture. I was in Fairfax, Virginia, um, uh, over the weekend um, for a, a Mercator Center conference, actually on. Um, on on what's called governing markets as knowledge commons, but I was in Fairfax, and Fairfax um, is about half an hour, forty five minutes out of Washington D.C. And so, rather than going into D.C. and trying to find some museums there, I decided to see what was available in the local area. And a um, uh, twenty minute walk from where I was staying was the National Firearms Museum by the National Rifle Association. It's there. Because well, um, we do associate museums with culture. We, we do culture associate, and, and yes, yes, and I thought, and, and as I was there, I was thinking to myself, wow, I'm catching up on Australian politics <laughs> at the National Firearms Museum. Anyway, it was actually a really interesting and um, fascinating place. They've got 3,000 firearms. I'm not a big um, guns person, so I wasn't able to really distinguish between a lot of them, but it was it was fascinating, uh, and, and I, I sort of started to understand these... Um, these artifacts, these historical artifacts, and how the design of the firearms reflects general changes in, you know, American politics or the history of the American West or um, or the use of uh, firearms in in law enforcement or military context. The very complex interaction between civilian uses, civilian use firearms, and military use firearms. The relationship that um, uh, American military culture has on American um, firearm culture. It was actually, it's actually really interesting place to go. 3,000 guns is a lot of guns to look at, but if you're in Fairfax, Virginia for a wow. conference for some reason in the future, it's actually, it is it is worth your time. And, and of course, Did it was... Did you have to um, check your firearm at the door? <laughs> no, no, but I had they to check my bag. They just added to the collection. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> they just keep it. Just, no, it's, it's all complete. So it's, it's a completely free um, museum. As I understand, all the firearms have been donated. There are these um, firearms collectors that will have 2,000 firearms, and when they when they pass away, their estate will hand those firearms over to the NRA Museum. It was actually – it was genuinely very interesting. What, what was the oldest gun? Um, so they had some very early sort of 16th century guns. They had a real emphasis on, on American firearms yeah. and, um, and firearms in America for obvious reasons. They had one of the first firearms that um, – sorry, the first still extant firearms that had been brought over 
um, with the um, uh, with the British settlers yeah. into the um, early American colonies um, that they'd actually only uncovered a couple of years ago when they were excavating a, a house of wow. one of the early like, settlers. Like it was it was actually it was genuinely a very interesting place, um, and and of course it's you know highly controversial. So why 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 not? It's a great propaganda exercise by the NRA. I suppose. Oh no no it, it yeah <laughs> look the, the, it wasn't a balanced debate about <laughs> the virtues of the Second Amendment. Was, was a child in Heston? You can there's have a child, my guns when you prize them from my well, cold there's, dead there's hands. A, there was a child in Heston um, uh, oh, display wonderful. room. Was there a gift shop? That's there, a, there was a gift shop and you can buy wooden fake guns, which I, I just thought I wasn't going to get through <laughs> customs. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask that question because I've been to some Chinese museums and in the Chinese museum, some of the artifacts have got price tags on them. If you like them, you can actually buy them. <laughs> wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. So I was just wondering, did, did, did the guns have it's price tags? Or you could different model. I'm afraid not. <laughs> and uh, I just realised I've had two Charlton Heston references in this podcast, so... Doing all right. You're doing pretty well. That's your chart. First one, Planet of the Apes. Next one, NRA. <laughs> President Sink, what have you been looking at? I have been watching Netflix, uh, not doing anything remotely cultural. And uh, I, I oh, no, no, no. That if it wasn't for Netflix, we'd have nothing to talk about on this scene. Well, we, this we, is we, true. This is true. Yes, yes. So there I was watching uh, Love, Death and Robots. And it is a, a series, I think it's about 10 or 15 to 20 minute animation story, science fiction short story animations. And while I was watching through them, I actually realized I recognized a few of the stories. And two of my very favorite science fiction authors have actually had some of their short stories picked up in this. The first one was uh, is Alistair Reynolds, a, 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 British, oh, yeah. um, a, a British science fiction author. And the second one also, br- br- British Peter F. Hamilton. Yep. Um, and so these... Neutronium Alchemist and other great oh, works. Yes, 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 the Night Dawn trilogy. Um, now, so I, I kind of thought, well, how awesome is this that you're actually watching a show of, of sort of like random science fiction stories? And uh, this is just a bit of a spoiler. Some of them are a bit naughty. So if, if, you, <laughs> if, if you are offended by such things, maybe you should skip over a couple of those episodes. Put the parental uh, lock on. Yep. Uh, yes, yes. Unfortunately, I can never work out how to switch the parental lock off. So, <laughs> so we, we never have it on in my house. Um, but I, I was actually kind of excited thinking, gee, you know, here, here are actually mm. stories that I've actually read myself that I'm seeing in visual form. And the challenge always for me, and especially a challenge for science fiction, I think, is that when you've read a book and you've imagined it in your own mind, when you watch somebody else's imagination of it, it's never quite as good as. Mm. And that's always a bit disappointing. So if, if you saw the, the Ender's Game movie a few years ago, mm. um, the books were simply magnificent. Mm. The movie kind of had to hammer it home between the eyeballs what was going on here. So you, you kind of lost the, the, the realisation that you as a reader come to about what's going on in terms of of they have to make this blatantly obvious to the audience. But um, nonetheless, I, I kind of thought I, I was inspired to write a long blog post about good science fiction, and I thought I, I would talk about it here. But certainly, if, if you were looking for new authors to read, um, Alistair Reynolds, his Re- Revelation Space series, mm. um, I think it goes for about 10 books. It's a combination of uh, novel-length affairs, novellas, and also short stories. Simply magnificent. I've, I've read these books in the order which they were published in, and then also in internal story chronological order. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a bit of dedication there. And then the Peter Hamilton series. Now, now uh, Peter writes these big space opera affairs. He's been bringing out trilogies over the last few years, but I, I think his most famous trilogy is, is the Night's Dawn trilogy, the... Um, uh, well, I can never remember the names of the individual books, but the Night's Dawn trilogy, which I think 
the three books go for about one and a half million words. So they are big, massive, massive door stoppers. And I knocked them off in about 10 days or so. I just yeah. read them straight through. Simply magnificent. So Alistair Reynolds, Peter F. Hamilton, uh, authors to read. And then, of course, if you've got Netflix, uh, Love, Death and Robots. Um, loving it. Some great recommendations there. Thank you, Sink. And I'd certainly endorse um, Peter F. Hamilton as something you just cannot put down. Um, I'm going to talk about a work that's slightly older, um, <laughs> uh, Homer's Odyssey, which was uh, written, uh, or not written down, it was, uh, sorry, originally out of an oral tradition in ancient Greece, roughly 8th century BC. It was a sequel, long before there was Marvel, there were sequels, um, uh, to the Iliad, which is probably... It's just not creative anymore, are they? <laughs> no, no, those ancient <laughs> Greeks. It was part of the decline of Western civilization, which <laughs> Bella's done nothing about. Uh, <laughs> They went from uh, the Iliad, which is probably 12th century, uh, to to the Odyssey, and it's it's the story of um, after the events in the Iliad where they uh, sacked Troy, thanks to the uh, the uh, what do they call it? The horse, the wooden horse, um, Trojan horse, Trojan Trojan horse. horse. God, mental block, uh, which was a, the, an idea of a bloke called um, Odysseus or Ulysses, if you follow the Roman uh, version of his name, uh, and it's his story that's described in. Uh, the Odyssey about his attempt to return home and having angered various gods, especially Poseidon. It took him uh, 10 years to get back and he'd already been away for 10 years and all he wants is to get back home to Ithaca, to his wife and to the son that he's, he's never seen, who he thinks if he's still alive would be about 18 or 19. Um, but events are always conspiring against him. So a a wonderful story, actually, much more human than than the Iliad, which is mainly about killing people. And, um, and is that bad? <laughs> well, for the ancient Greeks, it wasn't. It was glorious. And and um, uh, the Iliad is very much about the the, the glory of um, stabbing and killing people with arrows and sacking huge cities and abducting uh, their the people who live there and taking them into slavery and all the and and throwing babies off ramparts and all these sorts of things. So the fine traditions of Western civilization. Right. So, but there is a pro there is progress. That's what I'm saying. It's um, uh, this is much more individualistic in the mind uh, and much more about the regret and the pain of everything that happened in the in the Trojan War. There's been 60 translations of the Odyssey, because um, this may surprise you, but I, I can't actually read ancient Greek. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll link later to uh, Boris Johnson uh, in ancient Greek reading the Iliad. But anyway, this after 60 translations, the first is by, first by a woman, uh, Emily Wilson, uh, and it is actually marvellous because uh, the temptation with something that was written a very long time ago is to use sort of ornate neo-Shakespearean phrasing and lots of uh, big words and sort of hope that this gets the epic effect. Uh, She's done something much more using plain words. Um, It is in the sort of iambic pentameter of Shakespeare, um, and she avoids all the cliches um, in in the old translations, they used to talk about the wily Odysseus. You know, following <laughs> the oral tradition, everyone had these sort of little um, uh, adjectives that were always used every time. It was always the rosy fingered dawn, blah blah blah. She she's got much more variation. It's much more interesting. Um, Tell me about a complicated man. She begins, and and Odysseus is nothing if not a complicated man. Very clever bastard. Great yarn. Very old. Still relevant. I commend <laughs> it to everyone. Bella, what's your pick? 
Um, it's the same one, actually. <laughs> it's just a complete coincidence. <laughs> it actually is. Different, different translation. So um, it's the Penguin one, which was originally translated in the 40s by E.V. Rio, who was a London, who's an Oxford classicist, and he was part of the editorial team for the for the Penguin classics. Ah. Um, and the story is that he would sit by the fire during the Second World War, translating this, the story to his wife and daughters as the bombs were falling in the background. Wow. Um, and it was at that point he thought, this I is should write this down. I should actually <laughs> write this down. Um, and, and so his, his, his aim was to put it in, in language that was accessible for non-classicists. And at the time it was... Um, Fellow classicists thought it was a terrible idea because they, they just thought, how, how could you sort of for the riffraff s- s- making sal- education yeah, sully sully the language and mm. um, and so then it's interesting because then his son also read classics at Oxford and took up his father's manuscript went through it made some changes with someone else um, and it's a lovely little introduction where they just say the more that they looked at it the more they realised how brilliant his father was and they needed to make a few tweaks because he'd used sort of nineteen forties language um, but you know you say that. That it's your translation doesn't have the sort of the little you know rosy fingered and things like that. He has kept that, and I find that quite interesting as you go through because it's the rhythmic. It's, mm. it's as you would imagine that they, they they would have passed it on because people had to remember who it wasn't written down. They had to remember. They had to be identified by their their their, their traits. So it, yeah, it's the first time I've read it, and I'm I'm only about twenty or thirty pages in, but it's it's wonderful. It's got got you in already. It really has. Yeah. Well, as I say, th- this is an oral tradition, so mm. all the the wily Odysseus and the, and all that sort mm. of stuff that, that's sort of supposed to be spoken, and, and people sitting around the ancient fires and whatever. Ooh, the, you know, the wily, yeah. yeah. And it's um, the flashing eyes, the Athena with the flashing yeah. eyes. I, I think it's it's wonderful, and it's just it really. It really use you have to use your imagination, and it's it's um, much very rich. It's it's great. It is, and um, uh, off air sync was giving me um, some grief over the fact that I was unable to read it in the ancient Greek. So that's slack. That slack. <laughs> um, I was, uh, well, I actually, actually want to make the point is that you said there've been sixty translations. There must have been millions of translations because in the bad old days, an educated person uh, did classics. Mm. Um, yes, they, and so there would have been schoolboys for centuries who would have been translating these things from ancient Greek into modern Greek into perhaps English. not in their entirety though. So no, no, passages. No. But, but you're right. Exercise in class. Um, but, but you're right, it was part of a liberal education. That's why the first English translation was only in the 17th century, because... Yes. Um, Civilised people could read it in could, ancient Greek. Could, could mm. read it in, in, in Greek mm. and Latin, and, and that's why the Penguin Classics, are, uh, I love that you described that background, Bella, because that's the point of it, that this thing that was once reserved only for a very, very small mm. elite is now accessible to everyone, and that was the mission of the Penguin Classics. Yes. And, and then this internet, which apparently the CSIRO invented, came along. And <laughs> isn't it a wonderful <laughs> thing that all of this is, is, is now accessible? Oh, sorry, that's right. That was it. I, thought he, I thought he invented climate change. Uh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll put up the links to those Two books. Two great achievements of the modern age. <laughs> and, al- and also, if you wanted to get the rhythms of how it sounded in the ancient Greek, I will put up that link to um, Boris Johnson uh, when he was in Australia. Um, very good. So you've been uh, listening to Looking Forward. I'd first of all like to thank our participants, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Bella Debrera. Sinclair Davidson. Thanks. And also our wonderful producer, James Bolt. Uh, We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.